open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray you'd help me make it plain and clear. You'd use it in our lives, keep us from any distraction or interference. May Jesus Christ, His grace, and His gospel be exalted today. That He might get glory. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to a new chapter uh, in the epistle of Romans, but if you listen to what Colin said whenever he read, you probably heard rather quickly that this is not entirely new because it begins with a question that links us to the chapter before. In fact, if you remember this eight-part outline of Romans, you can see that we're still in the, the fourth section on a believer's assurance. You remember way back whenever we started the, the book of Romans, there was Paul's introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness, which is the theme of, of Romans, the gospel of God's righteousness. Paul introduces himself and talking about he's not ashamed of this gospel that he wants to preach. Then he went into man's universal need that went all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. Then the exclusive solution in the gospel of God's righteousness. That spanned both Old and New Testament. Salvation has always been by grace through, through faith, and Paul proved that to us. And then, beginning in chapter 5, there was a believer's assurance because of the gospel of God's righteousness. That runs all the way through the end of of chapter 8. What's coming after that is not a new set of, uh, of numbers, but 5 through, through 8, there's the defense of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, the example of preaching the gospel, and then the, the doxology for, for the gospel. And chapter 5, though, began this entirely new section, which was all about the blessings that that come from the, the message that, that Paul preaches. And so starting in chapter 5, stretching all the way through chapter 8, Paul outlines the promises and the privileges that we have because we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. We, we have been justified or justification by, by faith alone. And in chapter 5, he told us that we have peace and we have grace and we have hope with God and eternal life, which Christ who's the last Adam, brings to us. And, and we just finished that, that, that section. Paul's main concern there was that every believer have an absolute assurance of their, of their new standing. He doesn't just say, though, be assured or be secured. He, he, he gives us logic and he, he lays these truths in our minds. He explains to us what, what actually justification means and what it brings to us and, and how we've been transferred from one representative Adam into another representative Christ. And, and that, that change in our standing before God uh, brings this, this massive assurance because of, of a new association. While we were all condemned in Adam, a believer has a new representative, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul just got done explaining. But his final statement in, in chapter 5 brings up some, some questions, actually some, 
some new questions. I mean, this happens all the time in Paul's writings. He, he begins to, 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 to make a statement like he does in verse 12, and he gets to the end about how all sinned, and he says, you know, I need to make that plain. So he, he goes on and, and, and does that. Then he gets to the end of, of verse 14 and he, about where he's talking about Adam and Christ. Adam is a type of the Christ that is to come and, and then feels the need to explain that. And, and then he gets all the way to the end and summarizes his thought. And he says, I brought up law back here in verse, uh, verse 13 that I, I didn't explain. People may stumble over that. And so he gives this explanation again in verses 20 and 21. And now Paul feels the need to do that, having brought up grace. This time not about law, but about grace. And his answer is not two verses. It's the entire chapter, all of chapter 6. Did you have some questions about grace whenever you, you, you listened last week? Maybe you're listening there about this this flooding grace, this powerful grace, this grace that comes to us when we don't deserve it and, and you're sitting there thinking, what about this and what about indwelling sin and, and what about all of these other things? Well, if you did, Paul has you in mind this morning. The apostle launches into this new series of explanations in chapter 6, which all of which support the theme of assurance that he already began back in chapter 5. This time... The explanation is about grace and sin and how we battle it. And if you studied Romans before, you, you may have heard this section, beginning in chapter 6, is, is about sanctification. And in some regards it is. You, you'll learn about sanctification. But you may have heard a simple outline uh, for, for Romans. I believe at one point in my life I, I, I've even used it. Uh, Romans 1 through 3 is all about sin. Romans 4 and 5 is about salvation. Romans 6 through 8 is about sanctification, and Romans 9 through 11 is about sovereignty. And it's very memorable because they're all S's, sin, salvation, sanctification, and, and sovereignty. But, but when you actually dig into to Romans itself, you, you'll see that the, the text bears out some additional details. And chapter 5 is clearly about assurance, and that actually sets the theme. For chapter 6 through 8. So chapter 5 through 8 is all about assurance. And, and, and you know that by, by now. You know it's primarily about this justified security that we now have in, in Jesus Christ. But just as chapter 1 begins with, with this word therefore, showing it's connected to what Paul just got done saying in chapter 4 about Abraham's faith, chapter 6 begins with a question which clearly shows us that it's a follow-up to the last thing that, that, that Paul said in, in chapter 5. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse, verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? And you say, say about what, Paul? Well, say about the teaching that I just gave concerning grace in, in, in verse 21. That's what he's talking about. What shall we say about this grace that I just got done explaining? And, and the question he asks is about this grace, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? To which he answers with, with, with utter indignation. May it never be. That, that, that's his answer. And, and then he begins a new commentary on the topic explaining it. 
And he says in verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's how he starts the explanation, and the explanation goes all the way through verse 14 of chapter 6. And so this is a new section, but it's still under the former topic of, of assurance. And I believe it's one of the most helpful sections in all of the, the book of, uh, of Romans. Because chapter 6 teaches us about a grace from God that conquers the power of, of sin. Not just the power of sin judicially, but the power of sin that's resident in the world. The power of sin that's still there in your unredeemed flesh. The power of sin that you have to deal with on a, on a daily basis. And the, the truths about grace that Paul introduced in verses 20 and 21 is actually a prerequisite to this chapter. I mean, you might think of Romans 5, 20 and 21 as grace 501, and, and then Romans 6, 1 and 2 is 502. And then verses 3 through 5 is 503 and, and on. And by the time you get to verse 14, you'll have a master's degree in, in grace as it relates to, to indwelling sin. In fact, we said, if you don't understand what Paul meant... And what he said in verses 20 and 21 of the previous chapter, you'll not fully grasp the message of, of Romans 6 or, or Romans 7. Chapters 6 and 7 are actually an extended commentary on, on those two verses of the end of, of Romans 5. You might think of them like, I think Lloyd-Jones said they're like two giant parentheses. So here's one in chapter 6 and here's one in, in, in chapter 7. And then Paul follows back up to where he, he left off in chapter 8. I mean, there's no need to speak about the law, how the law relates to a believer in chapter 7 if you don't understand why God gave it, which is what he just got done explaining in verse 20. I mean, statements like, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? May it never be. Same statement that he makes here about, about continuing in sin. On the contrary, he said, I would not have come to know sin except through, through the law. There would be nobody even asking that question. The apostle would feel no need to address that question if he didn't say what he said in, in, in verse 20. And there's no need to detail this triumphant, victorious, glorious power of grace over sin. If you didn't just hear how almost utterly outrageous it sounds. I mean, the gospel is so one-sided, so one-sidedly shocking that you find yourself asking, I mean, is this possible? I mean, if you, when you truly understand the gospel, that it's all by grace, it has nothing to do with you, it's from God and and you are walking as hard and as fast in, in the opposite direction, some of you, like me, running in the opposite direction, and the Lord comes and saves you. And, and, and He does that when you're a rebel. And He does that all because of His glorious grace. When, when you truly grasp that, I mean, you find yourself asking the question, I mean, can this be true? I mean, is it really possible? Can there truly be a salvation that's so completely free in a world where people talk about religion and it's you do these five things over here or pray these prayers or go to Mecca or, or whatever it, it might be. Or, or you believe in Jesus, but you keep these other things too because, I mean, you know, you got to have your part. God helps those who help themselves, right? You've heard that before. 
And the Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves, that don't even want to help themselves. God comes to them in free, sovereign grace. And you say, is it possible? <laughs> I mean, can it really be that one, one-sided? I mean, it almost sounds too good to be, to be true. And if you haven't had even a hint of that or a thought of that, you might not have ever understood the gospel and grace itself. Which is why Paul starts this chapter 6 the way that he does. He says, shall we continue in sin that this amazing, abounding, almost shocking grace, shall we continue in sin that that grace may abound? I mean, the question comes because grace is so astounding. What grace, Paul? This increasing grace of, of verse 21. Verse 20, I should say. The flooding grace that, 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 that doesn't just cover all of our sins, it engulfs them like an ocean. The, the affecting and powerful grace that, that invades our lives without any merit from us. The, the reigning grace that rules over us like a kind king and, and in turn actually makes us rulers with Jesus Christ. This eternal grace that's ours now and never ends. Uh, the grace that ushers us into the eternal realm uh, a grace that begins a work in us and continues it unto the day in which we see Christ Jesus. And this grace is ours, he says. And it reigns over us. All of us who have believed upon Jesus Christ by faith alone. And Paul now must debunk a, a common notion about what this kind of grace seems to encourage. So he asks the question in verse 1. Because our our natural inclination to grace is, is to find it so shocking. It is so utterly unlike humanity, unlike anything that we would, would come up with. And then he explains how a believer then operates in this grace while still dealing with indwelling sin and, and sin all, all around us. So, so there's a correcting answer, and then there's instruction that, that goes on in the chapter dealing with sin now that, now that you're saved. And he'll tell us in chapter 6, we are, we are dead to sin and yet alive to God. And that sin is no longer our master. And he'll declare to us that we're free from the law and its penalty in chapter 7. And that one day we'll even be free from this body of death where, where that sin, that remnant sin still comes from. And finally, in chapter 8, he'll describe the new life that we now possess in the Holy Spirit, the this glorious section ends with that, that statement about immovable confidence. Nothing can ever separate us from these things or the love of God in Christ Jesus. But here's a question about grace, and it's a question that the Apostle Paul has heard before. It is no doubt something that has come up on Paul's missionary journeys. Remember, Paul has already completed his missionary journeys, a number of them, and he wants to go even further. He wants to go in Spain, into Spain. And when he's been preaching this gospel by, by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, he's had people, specifically, more than likely Jews, saying, time out, what about the law? And he's been accused by, by preaching this, this biblical gospel that, that it leads people to forsake the law, to forsake righteousness. And the, and the argument went something like this. 
if what you're saying is true, Paul, that the Mosaic law was added by, by God later, not to save us, but so that we would all become little atoms, so we would all become transgressors ourselves. We were already sinners, already condemned in Adam. The law was added so that we would all then have a line to step over ourselves, not just sinners, but clear lawbreakers. And that wasn't even the end. What you're saying, Paul, it was, was that God did that so He could actually magnify His grace to an even greater degree by covering even more sin. Then doesn't that logic to lead us to conclude that the more we sin, the more God is glorified? I mean, doesn't that message, Paul, then, then lead people just to sin more? I mean, then they get even more grace, and God is even more glorified. I mean, if it's all grace, Paul, doesn't that just leave people or give people a license to, to sin? I mean, if the, if the law increases sin and grace increases God's glory, then isn't it better to sin? I mean, I'm following your logic here, Paul, and, and it's bringing me to an end that, that, that I think is wrong. Or maybe it leads that we, just, we don't even worry about sin at all because it's all grace. I mean, because God's grace is, is just going to take care of it. It's the common idea that some people even have today. You may have heard it before, before they sin. You may have even said it. Something like, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. You ever heard somebody say that? I mean, He's a loving God. He understands. All of this as opposed to the, to the Jewish legal system, which says law is needed, it's necessary to restrain sin. Paul never says the law is bad. But from a Jewish standpoint or from a legal standpoint, they would say the law is necessary. Yes, grace, but you need law too to restrain sin. And it surely would be if our hearts were restrainable, but they're not. You can just look at Israel and tell that. More law didn't fix them. It only increased their rebellion because only Christ can conquer sin. You must be born again. But the question remains, and it's a worthy question, worthy uh, of an answer. Doesn't downplaying the law end up leading to people doing whatever they want? If you leave the gate open, won't the cattle get out of the field? Don't rules keep us from sinning, Paul? And if they, if they do, then, then why do you seem to be saying that they don't? What about sin and grace, Paul? And you don't have to be a Jew steeped in the Old Testament to wonder that, that do you? Haven't you thought about that before? I mean, what about the people who claim to love grace? Grace, grace, and yet in their lives, you can tell they actually love sin. Haven't you asked a question about that before? We're not subject to falling to the errors of rabbinical Judaism, but, but we nonetheless ask the same question in, a, in another form. Believing what the Bible teaches about salvation by grace alone and eternal security, I'm sure you've heard the, these questions about grace before. But what am I to do with, with people who claim to be saved but live like Satan? I mean, what do we do with people who claim to be Christians but don't have much Christ in their life? 
What about the so-called carnal Christian? What do we do with them? And if you've been listening to all this assurance and security that Paul's been providing in Romans 5, and you're wondering, well, well, I know people who say all of that, and they live an entirely different way. I see them. I might even live with them. What about them? Well, Paul's going to answer you today, because it's true that there are a lot of people who claim to know Jesus, but there's very little evidence that they do. B.R. Lakin said that you can, uh, you can identify them like, like flowers. They're the morning glories, people who only come to church on Sunday morning. You never see them again. They're the Easter lilies, people who come only on Easter. They're the poinsettias. They only come on Christmas. When you look at their lives, they live more like poison ivy and nettleweed than any of those flowers. And sadly, sadly, the modern church has preached such a weak and impotent gospel that it's even needed to develop new doctrine to accommodate people like that, they, where they even change the definition of a Christian in order to, to fix what this false gospel actually has produced. I mean, if the gospel you preach doesn't truly change people, then there's only about two things that, that you can do. One is to change the definition of a Christian, which sadly is, is, is what the church has done in a, in a lot of ways. You say, well, well, they're committed followers and then they're uncommitted believers. Or, or they're saved people and then they're disciples. They're people who are really serious and then they're the carnal Christians. You kind of bifurcate Christianity in these two categories. You, you make a decision and then you become a disciple sometime later in your life whenever you get serious. You... You prayed a prayer at three years old whenever grandma was there or in vacation Bible school. But there's zero evidence whatsoever that Jesus has changed you at all. But you can give me the date and the time of when you did this and you believed. And then later you become a disciple. And when someone calls you on the lack of testimony in your life, you say, well... I'm, I'm, I'm not serious yet. I'll, I'll become a disciple one day. But I made a decision. And under that system, people who actually live like Christians are, are viewed as some higher level of the original New Testament version. You can't find that, that separation anywhere in, in, in the New Testament. I can remember not long after I came to Christ hearing people say, Wow. Uh, and old Brian, he, he must have got a double dose. He's on fire for the Lord. That's what they used to say whenever, back in West Virginia, 20-some years ago. And that's what they called it whenever um, you, you were transformed by the gospel. I mean, these people had been to my house. I mean, they, they came to my home between uh, sunrise service on Easter and the main service. I didn't go to church, but Tracy invited them to the house, and they came, and here I'm there. I'm not going to church. I'm waiting on NASCAR to start. And they opened the refrigerator, and they saw the whole bottom row full of beer, and then they saw me radically transformed and, and changed and want to be there. And they concluded, as they looked at, the transformation, and they looked at other people and say, well, he must have got a double dose. Well, there's, there's only one dose, and that dose is enough. 
I was just a total pagan and, and just so thankful to know my sins were, were forgiven. And you may have elevated zeal whenever you, you first come to, come to Jesus. But, but Paul's point is if Jesus is in you, He's radically changed you, all of you. And you don't need additional doses of Him in the beginning or throughout your Christian life to climb some hierarchical ladder. So that's one way to deal with a, a doctrine that, that's contrary to what Paul teaches here. But, but if you don't change the definition of a Christian and, and you have these two types of people, the only other thing you can do is to try to change the gospel itself, to, to deal with the, with, with the outcome. I mean, you know, deep, deep down, um, a Christianity like that that allows sinning is, is not good. And so you, just, you, you then add things to, to the gospel. A few rules like baptism, a few requirements like a higher life. You just mix in a little law with, with grace. Just to make sure that we don't condone sin, we'll add a little bit to it. But, but when we do that, we, we, we make it no gospel at all. I mean, adding anything to the gospel, even for good intentions. Adding anything to grace takes away all the power of grace, because then it's not grace. And renders it powerless, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul had to deal with it with the Galatians. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 1, 6-8? He said to the church, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a, for a different gospel. You're deserting God. And He's the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're leaving that for an entirely different gospel, which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we, or an angel from heaven, even if his name is Moroni, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. You see, both of those band-aids are for sin are unbiblical. And you don't need to change the definition of a Christian, and you don't need to add to the gospel when you understand the gospel of grace. When you understand it's actually impossible for transforming grace to lead to more sin. Legalism is a danger for people who tack something else onto the gospel by adding law to it. The other side is antinomianism, where people believe there are no restrictions at all, but, but Paul says both are error. MacArthur said Paul declares in this passage, you cannot abandon God's grace to accommodate the legalists, nor abandon God's righteousness to accommodate the libertines. Paul says justification surely comes by grace alone, but justification does not exist without sanctification which is what Paul means by the phrase, we died to sin. And the rest of the chapter explains what he means by that, details it out. Paul says it's impossible to be alive in Christ and to be alive to sin under its reign. Of course, a believer is not going to be totally without sin before they get to heaven. But from the moment that they're born again, they're totally separated from sin's controlling power. And that's good news if you understand it. Let me show you how the passage fits together and, and then we'll look at it. We're just introducing it today. 
And Paul begins here with this question about grace and sin. Look, if you would, at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's the question. And then verses 2 through 14 is the answer. And the answer comes in four parts. Here's the first part of Paul's answer to that question. Verse 2. May it never be. Paul says, we cannot continue in sin because we, we died in Christ. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? I mean, his first answer is, dead people can't be reigned over by, by sin. But that still leaves some questions, doesn't it? What does it mean to, to, to die in Christ? Well, that's the second part of his answer in verses 3 through 5. He explains what he means because it's not entirely clear in verse 2. What does it mean to say believers have died to sin? Well, verse 3. Explanation. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Explaining what He means. But there's a new concept here about baptism. And, and so Paul explains even further in, in his fourth part to his answer, beginning in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Explains the reality even further. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified in Him in order that... Our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Notice he's just continuing to explain what he means. And he keeps on all the way to verse 11, where he begins to give his fourth part to his answer. But notice the shift in verse 11. Even so, here's imperative commands. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Another command, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you may obey its lusts. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting yourselves, members. Now, now he, he moves to the commands of the explanation. And all of that will become clear. He goes all the way through verse 14. It'll become clear as we walk through that verse by verse over the, over the next several weeks. But, but today, Paul's just going to introduce and deal with this common question that we have, that everyone has, about this radical grace. And he's going to provide two answers to it. We'll say two answers to the common question about, about grace that comes up in verses 20 and 21. The first answer is biblical grace never leads to sin's encouragement. Verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Biblical grace never leads to sin's encouragement. And his second answer is grace, biblical grace, always leads to sin's end. Because we, we die in, in Christ. Grace never leads to sin. Grace always leads to sin's end. Never it's encouragement, but always it's, it's end. Let, let, let's look at the... The first answer about grace that he gives here, grace never leads to sin's encouragement for, for true believers. Back to verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And the answer at the beginning of verse 2, his first answer is may it never be. It's the strongest possible way to, to say that in, in the original. 
I mean, Paul starts by, by asking the question that he's heard before, and he does that so he can answer it. I mean, it's a writing method to, to make a point. I mean, it's asking a question that, that you want to answer. It's like saying, some of you may be curious about or some of you want to know. Well, let me give you the answer to that. It, it, it's, it's a method. And the point I'm making is Paul wants to answer this question. Paul doesn't come about, uh, up to grace and he doesn't be, he's not thinking himself, I don't know what to do about sin or anything else. So let's just kind of just lay grace out there and then skip over the, the hard stuff. I mean, Paul wants to answer this question. There is a question. I mean, there is an answer to this question. He doesn't shy away from it. And he puts it right up front first and introduces this, this entire chapter. And he says that the idea is ridiculous. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? It's ridiculous. I mean, is there such a thing as someone who claims to be a Christian but still gets drunk all the time on the weekends? May it never be. That's ridiculous. Those two things don't go together. I mean, a Christian with an unchanged life? Paul says, no way. An impotent gospel that doesn't transform? Impossible, Paul says. May it never be. That's ridiculous. I mean, think of all of the things that, that have to take place in salvation, that do take place in salvation. When this grace comes flooding into your life, when you're saved, you pass from, from death unto life. You, you've been born from above. You, you've been born again, a, a spiritual birth from, from God. You're, you're no longer a slave, but, but a son. And the Spirit of God now lives inside of you. He takes up residence in you. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Spirit of God has poured out the love of God in your hearts. I mean, Romans 5 says it's bubbling up in us. The love of God is, is like, a, it's like a wellspring inside of us, coming from the Holy Spirit that... That, that, that lives within us. And Paul says it's impossible for all those things to happen. It's impossible for one of those things to happen and not be different and to continue in sin and that to have no effect on you whatsoever. I mean, is it possible to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and, and not be changed? not be transformed? I mean, is it possible to be made alive spiritually and not grow? Of course, you know the answer. It's not possible. In the same way, it's not possible to actually be a Christian and not consistently live like it. I mean, think of the, the question that they're asking, which is legitimate. It's a question that I've had, that you've had. Think of the question they're answering, uh, the, the question they're asking, and Paul's answer maybe this way. Maybe this illustration will, will help you. I mean, giving someone a credit card with no limit and no restrictions seems like it would promote abuse, right? Abuse of that credit card. I mean, it, it, does it make sense to, to give your, your credit card to a stranger with no boundaries? I mean, even if it's someone you know, I mean, we have limits on the card. I mean, maybe like a $2,500 max or something, or, or maybe a prior authorization before usage. Like, you know, 
you get a text on Amazon. Junior's ordering something again. Do you approve? And if you don't have those things, I mean, people will just run up a bunch of charges, won't they? I mean, since they don't have to pay for it themselves, it's on your bill. That's the question that they're asking. It makes logical sense. That's the question here. And that question does make sense. And it doesn't make sense to do that unless the person you're giving the credit card to is your faithful son. Someone who loves you dearly. Someone who maybe has even been restored to, to the family after a great fall. And a person like that would never abuse any privilege that, that you have given him because they desire to please you more than anything else in, in, in the world. And you know if they do fail, if they do stumble, they're going to repent quickly and they're going to try to, to, to restore whatever it was that they did because that's what's in them. You see, Paul says grace is like that. He doesn't throw cheap grace around, but he doesn't withhold anything from those who have been transformed by it because he doesn't need to. That's what he's saying. You see the difference? You can't get to God through good deeds, but but if God gets in you, then good deeds surely are going to come out of you. It won't be perfection, but there'll definitely be direction. And that direction will will be there because there's a desire to go in that direction. Works don't have any part of your your salvation, but but works surely come from our salvation. Well, it's true, as a Christian, you still sin. I wish I didn't. I think some of the, I don't think I know, I absolutely know some of the greatest griefs, some of the greatest grief that I've ever experienced in life is when I have realized that I've sinned against God and disappointed Him, trampled under His grace in some way. Prior to salvation, I could have cared less. I just didn't want to get caught. But now I care. And you won't get up from calling upon the name of the Lord with all the junk that you put in your head for the last 20 years gone, but there will be a change in you. There will be a change of desire and a change of direction. You won't be the same. And if you are the same, Paul says, you're not a Christian. You see how grace seems so radically dangerous, but it's perfectly safe if there's a transforming gospel that makes you a new creature? And if there's not faith and progressive obedience, even if it's slow, even if there's fits and starts, and then Paul says you've not passed from death into life. Because whatever is alive grows. A dead tree can't bear, bear fruit. I mean, I use this illustration that's popped in my head in, in the 8 o'clock service. I mean, we just came through Christmas, and sometimes people buy you those little evergreen trees, you know, the little ones like they buy at Kroger's or wherever, and little, you know, Christmas bulbs on them and you, let, let's say somebody bought you one of those and, and you didn't water it and it died, which most of them die, unfortunately. It, 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 but yours died and you set it out on the front porch. And there it is on the front porch and the, the, it's brown now, not green. And I come over and see it and I think, well, that's interesting, you know. 
And then springtime comes, and, and, and I, I come to your house again, and it's still sitting on the front porch. Now the le- all the needles have fallen completely out of it, and we're talking, and you're out there watering your flowers that you've planted because it's spring, and, and then you're watering this thing too. And I'm watching you, and, and, and every time I come over, you're still watering this, 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 this plant. I'm probably going to think there's something wrong with you. Paul says it's the same way. Dead things don't grow. Things that alive do. If we're to use the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So how's your fruit? The consistent fruit of your life proves what you are. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet live our lives in darkness, we, we, we lie to ourselves, and we do not the truth. Paul says, genuine faith produces faithfulness. And if a person is all talk but no walk, they're not, uh, not a believer. Or as they say in Texas, they're all hat but no cattle. You heard that before? And you have some pretty big cowboy hats running around in the modern church, don't you? <laughs> and there's not a lot of cattle in the stall. But a genuine believer who has been transformed by radical grace, will that person continue to live in sin? No way. No chance. May it never be. In fact, they cannot live under sin's reign because they, they died to it, which is the second answer that he gives, grace always leads to sin's end. Now pay attention, look at verse 2. Here's the first answer. May it never be. You can't continue in sin that grace may increase. Second answer, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 2 answers the question from verse 1, and notice it's a statement. It's not a command. It doesn't say die to sin. It says how shall we who died to sin, still live in it, still live under sin or, or in sin. It's an indicative. It's not an imperative. Now, he'll get to the imperatives in verse 11 through 14, but right now he's just declaring something, something that happened to you if you're a believer because of this grace that he just got done talking about. Paul is not exhorting us to cease from sin here. He's proclaiming the good news of what has already taken place. So whatever dying to sin means, it's something that happened to you because of grace, because of the gospel. And it happened through this grace, the kind of grace that he just described. Because that's the context that brought up the question. And so Paul wants to remove any hindrances to his message of grace, and so he, he debunks the idea that the gospel encourages sin. But he also wants to teach us as believers how to deal with the sin that's in us and around us and the sin that remains. And so he begins that teaching here by, by saying that begins by knowing something, something that grace has, has accomplished in you. And notice verse 1, 
is talking about continuing in sin. It doesn't say that we don't sin. It doesn't say anywhere that a believer will not sin. It says, will we continue in it? Will we live under it? Will we be in total bondage to it habitually? It says we won't continue in sin. So we, so we can have questions in our human logic about grace which is answered here, but we also still have to deal with sin in us and, and around us. And so Paul starts by debunking this false accusation from unbelievers. And at the same time, he teaches Christians how to overcome the, the remnant of sin. I call it the, the hangover from, from the fall. And I do that because of 1 Thessalonians 5.7, which describes an unbeliever like someone who's drunk in the night. Look at... Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. He says, For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on a breastplate of faith and love as a, as a helmet and, and the hope of, of, of salvation. He describes here an unbeliever as someone who's asleep, in the dark of night, inebriated. I mean, he layers this, this, this metaphor here for, for somebody who's, in, who's unsaved. You're not just sleepwalking and somebody has to wake you up. You're in the, the groping around in the blackness and you're drunk. You're, you're, you don't have your faculties, is the way he describes uh, you and me before I, I came to Christ you if you're an unbeliever. But he says, but since we now save, since we are of the day, let us be sober. We have light in us. We're not in the night anymore. We're not, we're not under the, the influence of sin in the way that, that we can't control it any longer. He says, when you come to Christ, you're no longer in that condition. You're changed. But there's still some effects of the intoxication, aren't they? You're, you're not intoxicated by sin any longer, but you can have quite a headache from it. And Paul says believers are no longer under the bondage of sin. Its reign has been broken, but, but you get a very clear idea what, what Paul means here. He talks about its effects, its after effects. When you look at the passage of the whole, I mean, it's clear he's talking about sin's power. Again, look back at verse, verse 20. So that, I'm sorry, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, chapter 5, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. Here's the reign. He defines sin as a power. Sin reigns over us. We were all in bondage to sin before Christ. And then he declares this grace is now reigning over us. Grace is a ruler as well. And, and that statement about sin's power and sin's reign is, is what... Grace's power and reign is what prompts the question in 6.1. It makes the concept that he's talking about here very clear. Paul's focus is the dominion of sin. You've died to the dominion of sin. He says we died to it. We died to its power, which has now been broken in the life of a believer by this grace. And if you need more proof, look at verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, a, a new life, the way you live. Look at verse 6. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now look at verse 12. Here's the imperatives. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. You can now do that. Before, you couldn't do that. You're under sin's reign. You're a slave to sin. Your desires lead you around. When you put all of this together, Paul's talking about the power of sin and the power of grace. But you also know that in the world in which you live, while that power, that bondage has been broken, my chains have fallen off, that, that there's still sin in you, still sin around you. It's secondhand smoke. It's in your pores. You're stained by it. Which is why Paul says at the end of Romans 7, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't wait. I've been delivered judicially. I am no longer judged by by my sin. By grace, I have been delivered from sin's reign. And I am battling that. I now have the ability to battle that where before I didn't. But I can't wait until it's completely gone. I can't wait until the resurrection, glorification. What a day that will be. And that power of grace now reigns in its place. And that transforming grace doesn't lead you to excuse sin or abuse the credit card or say, well, God will forgive me. It leads you to do everything in your power not to displease the one who saved you. You hate sin. And even when you fall to it, you loathe it. And you repent and you confess, even if the Lord has to discipline you. Do you have that kind of power? Transforming power? Is there a change in you? Do you rely on that power, Christian? I can remember witnessing to a man one time, very early, I don't know how long, within the first year or so of salvation. I'll never forget it. I was at a car dealership and I was explaining, I was witnessing to the guy, the forgiveness of God, and I was basically sharing my testimony, who I was and how wicked I was and how God saved me all by His grace and faith alone and... And he's listening to me. And I don't know if he's a believer or not. And, and he just looks at me and he says, You don't believe in that once saved, always saved junk, do you? And, and I don't define it that way today. I probably nuance that a, a little bit more. But I know exactly what, what, what he was saying. He went on to say, Where people can just pray a prayer and then go live however they, they want. You don't believe that, do you? And then he went on to say, well, whatever happened to you, I can tell you that, that, that if, if you don't hang on to Jesus, you're going to lose your salvation. And then he quoted this, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Have you ever heard somebody quote that verse related to losing your salvation? And I, I, I don't know a lot at that point, but I do know this. I knew I was not hanging on to Jesus. <laughs> I, I, it wasn't me holding up onto his finger 
I knew enough to know I was in the palm of his hand. I'm not hanging on, I'm right here. And I also knew enough to know that I did nothing to get there. And because of that, I I knew that nothing could pluck me from that that hand. And so I just said something like, friend, I'm, I'm not hanging on to him. If it was up to me hanging on, I would have been lost a long time ago. I mean, his idea is not what we believe or what the Bible teaches at all. You can't just pray a prayer and then go live the way you want to. You must be born again. But if you are born again, you won't just live however you want. You won't want to live in sin. So which is it? Do you believe a gospel that actually changes you? Or have you redefined the gospel to add some rules to deal with your sin? Or maybe even redefined a Christian to deal with the lack of the transforming power of whatever it was that, that, that you believed? Has it actually changed you? When people look at your life and find out you're a Christian... Do they ask the same thing that they ask Paul? Can you continue in sin that grace may may abound? I think better of you. I do. And I think the Lord does as well. Let's pray. The good news I have for you today, if you haven't been transformed, there is transforming grace available. But it's grace. It's not of you. You're not going to come to God on your own, and you're not going to be sanctified by your arm of the, of the flesh. Grace doesn't allow us to continue in sin. That's not any different than what I have in the world, but saving grace, transforming grace has broken the bondage of sin. And you can actually now say no as to where before you're impotent to do so. Oh, Father, I've asked this question. I still have new insights about an old truth being your grace, amazing grace, and I find myself saying, Lord, this is... This is breathtaking. It almost sounds too good to be true. But I know it is. Because it saved me and that just propels me to live for you. I pray that it would have the same effect on everyone here. Any Christian that is stumbling or living, may they avail themselves of the grace that's available. Anyone who believes they've made a decision without the transformation. May you help them see where they stand with you and then come to a grace that can transform them. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.